Last week, uh, we opened Isaiah 10 and focused primarily on the question, who controls history? Of course, we are often tempted to look around us to try and answer that question. We look at dictators, we look at big tech, we look at social media, look at the mob, or we look at the Assyrian Empire, if you are a Jew in Isaiah's day, to ask the question, who controls history? But we are reminded by Isaiah that above and beyond all of these is a sovereign God. And those forces in the world will not only fail in trying to thwart his plan, but they will find that all they can do is serve to advance his perfect plan for history. We've already seen how that plan gets worked out by God. We see him judging the wicked, forgiving and reconciling his people to himself. But uh, just as we heard in Brother George's prayer, as soon as we ask who controls history, we are led to ask the question, what is his outcome for it? What is he pointing it towards? What will it all lead to? What is the teleology, if you want the technical term? What outcome has God determined for history? Isaiah has already told us what God's sovereign will will mean for Assyria and for nations like them that thought they were in control. Isaiah 10 ends with this image of all of these nations. They were tools in the hand of God to bring his will about, an ax that he wielded, but when God's purposes for them are done, He will turn the acts of judgment on them. Look at the end of last week's passage. Isaiah 10 verses 33 and 34. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. So Isaiah paints This picture of all of these empires having faced God's judgment. They look like a toppled forest. Nations that once looked like big, immovable oaks and maples and cedars are now a field of stumps. But in the midst of this desolation, Isaiah will draw our attention to one particular stump. Look at chapter 11, verses 1 to 5. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse... And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked." Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So in the middle of this scorched earth, we look at one particular stump, and that stump is the line of David, God's appointed kings of Israel. Now they also have fallen under God's judgment, but they also have God's promises. And while the rest of the forest lies desolate, the line of David produces a bud. This picture, you might remember, harkens back to what we saw at the end of Isaiah 6 in the calling of Isaiah. There God gave Isaiah the image of the seed in the holy stump, the holy seed in the stump. 
that image was given and just left with us as this vague and unclear hope for God's people. But now we see the stump of the line of Jesse and here it buds and then it becomes a branch and then it takes root and even bears fruit. We get to see the hope for God's people now fully flower and grow. And Isaiah is going to vividly paint for us a picture of the coming kingdom of the son of David, Jesus Christ, God's sure outcome for all of history. And our first point is this, King Jesus rules with perfect wisdom and justice, bringing about a kingdom of universal peace and paradise. Isaiah shows us Jesus now in the full flowering of his kingship, and he rules with a special anointing of the Holy Spirit. To be anointed as king means that you will rule by the wisdom, the fellowship, the special equipping of the Spirit. And Isaiah lists for us some of the special gifts and qualities that the Spirit bestows upon this king, understanding, counsel, might. These qualities are chosen because they are the qualities which are necessary for a king to rule well. God's people, like all of us, have felt the burden of rulers who do not love or hold to these qualities. At best, we've enjoyed rulers who have tried to pursue them. But Jesus perfectly enjoys the fellowship of the Spirit and fully exercises all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah says that King Jesus' delight will be in the fear of the Lord. God's word tells us that wisdom begins in the fear of the Lord, that it is rooted in the fear of the Lord, to know God as he is, to love his will, to worship God as he is. For Jesus, this is not just a truth he acknowledges, it is the joy of his heart. The word for delight here in Isaiah is like smelling a sweet fragrance. Consider that immediate reaction of your senses that pours into your heart when you walk into a bakery or come home to cookies baking or in my house to frying garlic and onions. There is this natural, simple impulse of joy that pours through us. Many of us, indeed many kings, bind that delight to things like wealth to things like security, to things like health. But this joy in Jesus' heart arises naturally from the honor and the worship and the wisdom of God. It pervades his senses. It goes deep into his heart. He delights in the fear of the Lord. Indeed, Isaiah now, by looking forward to a king who will have perfect fellowship with the Spirit and delight entirely in God's will, is looking forward to a king who can only be God himself. At Jesus' baptism, he was revealed to be exactly this king when the Spirit descended upon him and the Father declared his delight, his pleasure in his Son. As one of the Trinity, Jesus participates in the one essence of God and he also participates in the perfect fellowship that exists with the other persons of the Trinity. Now, a king whose delight is bound up entirely in the fear of the Lord, who walks in step with the Spirit, is a king who cannot be moved by corruption or temptation. Isaiah says that King Jesus is going to wear righteousness and faithfulness. They aren't attributes that he aspires to. 
They aren't things that he's going to be able to practice on his good days. They are wrapped around him. He cannot remove them. We can be confident that Jesus is the same king today that he is going to be in a year and a thousand years and a million years. This means that Jesus will always rule and judge his people with perfect wisdom. He's not going to be swayed by appearances. He will not give favor to those who impress him or have something that they can offer him. He will not be taken in by prejudice. He will carry out perfect justice. And in the kingdom of Jesus, then, the meek will be treated with equity. The poor will be judged with righteousness. Not that Jesus is going to try and balance out prejudice with prejudice. He will see all of us for who we are. And we see in the Beatitudes that this means a hope for the meek and the poor in this world who trust in him. Meanwhile, those whose delight is bound up in this world and its treasures and taking what they can get will face the king's judgment. His perfect judgment of wickedness will be accomplished, says Isaiah, by his breath, by the rod of his mouth. This is the power of the word of Jesus. Again, we see that the promised king must be God himself. For who else has such power in their words except God alone? Jesus' words have power to judge and to conquer. In Revelation, Jesus rides forth with a sword, and that sword proceeds out of his mouth. And it is that sword that inflicts carnage upon his enemies. We each get a little taste of this, as Hebrews says, when God's word, his scriptures, like a sword, cut into us, revealing our deepest hearts and exposing us to the judgment of God. This will be the instrument by which Jesus' enemies are laid low and sent to eternal condemnation. And here I would speak to those whose trust is not in Jesus, who would not call him their king or your savior. You might believe in some idea of God. You might consider yourself moral. You might even be here this morning as a part of your idea of what makes you a good person. But you know that your joy and your fear, your treasures, your anxieties are all bound up in what you delight in in this world. Your hope is in what you see around you, even in yourself. We are about to look at the promised kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom he will bring about. But if your trust is in him, is not in him, then one of the ways he will bring about this perfect kingdom is by judging you as his enemy and casting you out of his kingdom into a place of eternal punishment. But we will also see that the difference between those who are removed from his kingdom and those who receive it is only placing their trust entirely in that good and perfect king. So let us see from Isaiah what sort of kingdom can come about when such a perfect king reigns. Let's look at verses 6 to 9. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf, and the lion, and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young shall lie down, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This picture naturally 
brings to our minds the Garden of Eden, the paradise that God designed in which he would dwell with his people. That paradise was closed off when we rebelled against God. Jesus will bring about nothing less than the full restoration of Eden, which is to say that he will defeat sin and reverse the curse and all of sin's effects. Not only will the predators and prey be at peace with each other, but humanity will be restored to its place of exercising gentle, joyful dominion over creation. And creation will yield happily to that dominion. The wolf dwells with the lamb and the child can lead the lion and the calf to graze in the fields together. All of creation will enjoy the peace and order of Eden. The reversal of the effects of sin and the curse builds up in this image of Isaiah to us watching children playing with cobras and adders. This calls to mind the tempter who crept into the garden of Eden as a serpent and reversed the order of creation. When Adam and Eve were meant to rule over what God had made, they submitted instead to creation, to the will of a snake. And so both they and the snake were cursed. And when God curses the serpent, we see God's great ominous promise to the devil. The seed of the woman will come and crush the head of the serpent. And when Jesus ultimately fulfilled that promise on the cross, when he brings it about in the conquest of his kingdom, one day, even the snakes are going to return to their humble place in the created order. No longer ruling over and tempting humanity, they will submit even to the gentle hands of children. Isaiah summarizes these scenes of peace by saying, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God's holy mountain was Zion. Often that name refers to Jerusalem itself, but more specifically, it refers to that mountain in the midst of Jerusalem upon which the temple sat. This is where men traveled to see the house of God, to meet God there, to know God there, as it were. Isaiah experienced the glory of God in this temple in chapter 6. In that vision, the glory of God was found in the temple. It filled the temple. It shook the temple, but was contained in the temple. But where is Zion now? Where is God met and known in this vision of Isaiah? Zion is where the lion is being led with the cattle. Zion is where the wolf is lying down with the lamb. Zion is where the child is playing with the cobra. Truly knowing God, experiencing his glorious presence that once seemed veiled in the temple has exploded out and touched the entire world. Indeed, it has drenched the world. It has filled it up like the waters filling the sea. Through the reign of Jesus, Zion goes global. The Edenic peace that the world will experience will culminate in what was most delightful about the first Eden. That this is where God meets with us, where he is known intimately by us. This is the culmination of the reign of Jesus. Eden Everywhere, Zion, everywhere. The whole world filled to the brim with the presence of God and enjoying perfect peace with him. 
And this kingdom will last for as long as Christ secures it, forever and ever. The mathematician philosopher Blaise Pascal argued that the promises that we see here, and indeed the warnings that God's word gives us, are so much infinitely greater than any possible other outcome of your life or history, that even if there was the smallest possibility that they might be true, it would be the most reasonable thing you could do to give your entire life towards attaining these promises. But indeed, God has shown us in his word, in creation, and by the Holy Spirit, that these promises are not possibly true. They are certainly true. The biggest, best promises that have been made in history are the ones that are most certain. They rest in the character and the reputation of God and what he has already certainly accomplished. How then can we be sure that these promises are ours? That we will be citizens of this kingdom rather than cast out of it in judgment. Let's see together how Jesus brings this kingdom about and welcomes into it all whose hopes are in him. Isaiah goes on to show us how Jesus establishes this global Eden, this global Zion. Let's read verses 10 through 16 of chapter 11. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal to the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria and from the, for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Our second point is this. The kingdom of Jesus will establish a united people founded upon his salvation. Isaiah has already said and continues to say that the words of Jesus, his breath, will judge and will conquer. And now here, Jesus sends out a proclamation, a signal that saves a people for himself. In verse 10, we see that that signal is in fact Jesus himself. He is raised up as the banner that proclaims good news. In verse 11, we see that this signal will draw back all the exiles of Israel. All of God's elect people who have been scattered will be drawn together and united as one people. This promise is greater than the reversal of a single exile. Although it surely does promise that those who go into exile will be brought back. But Isaiah says they will be drawn back not just from Assyria, 
But then he says from places like Egypt, Shinar, and Cush, he's listing the enemies of God's people, both contemporary and as far back as Genesis. It is clear that God is looking forward to an ingathering of his elect people greater and more pervasive than any in Israel's history. Verse 10 tells us this signal does not only draw those who historically called themselves Israel. This signal draws in all nations with them to inquire of the Lord, to desire to know him as Israel knew him, even to take part in his glorious resting place of Zion. Verse 12 draws those together. The signal is for the nations and it draws in Israel and Judah, but not just from one place of exile. From all the world. And this people will be unified in a way that God's people had never been before. David and Solomon ruled over what was often called the United Kingdom, but that kingdom itself was still full of jealousy and strife between the tribes. But in the Edenic kingdom of Jesus, strife and jealousy cease among God's people. Even the inclinations of the heart, which men feel against each other to do ill to them will be gone. So there will be no threat or hint of division or ruin in Jesus' kingdom ever. Jesus' kingdom will indeed be made up of sinners who deserve equal punishment to be cast away from God, but they will be those whom he has sanctified to make them into a people who can enjoy his peace forever. Nor will they ever again suffer the threat of foreign opposition. For just as Jesus will establish perfect peace within his people, he will lead them to conquer all of their enemies, so that they will never again plague his people. How will Jesus establish this purified, peaceful, victorious people? Isaiah tells us that the salvation of Jesus will be another greater exodus. Brought about by the word of Jesus. Isaiah is clear that the exodus itself was just a prophetic picture of the great exodus that Jesus will accomplish. God will raise his hand to recover his people a second time, just as he did in Egypt, but now on a global scale. Just as God once opened up the Red Sea so that Israel could pass on dry ground, now we see the river Euphrates drying up. This river was the barrier that kept God's people in exile. Just as the Red Sea seemed to block Israel's way to freedom, these barriers that kept people away from God's resting place, away from Zion, will now become open highways. The way into Zion will be clear, and God himself will accomplish this. So just as it was with the Exodus, God's kingdom will once again be clearly founded upon God making a way where no way existed to free his people from slavery to become his own. They will walk these open ways to God because they have been drawn to him by the signal that he has raised by Jesus himself raised up on the cross to bring God's people to him. This signal is good news. It is the gospel of Jesus. The Exodus was a foretaste of the power of this gospel. There God spared his people from the punishment that they deserved to suffer alongside the Egyptians by killing the Passover lamb in their place. This salvation was necessary 
from God's own anger and wrath before he could open the way of the Red Sea so that they could pass through it and depart from slavery. The gospel proclaims that Jesus, our lamb, has shed his blood on the cross to take God's punishment for our sin. This victorious king that Isaiah has been speaking of became a servant. He humbled himself even unto death. He bore the full wrath that sinners deserved and died on a cross for us. But even in facing death, our king came out victorious. Jesus' resurrection from the dead triumphantly heralds as an unflung banner that all who trust in him are spared from God's wrath and brought victoriously into his kingdom. God has opened a way where there seemed to be no way. And as people from all over the world are drawn out of the kingdom of darkness into Jesus' kingdom, as they go from enemies to being its people, the kingdom itself grows and goes out into the world conquering. The moment that Jesus died, when his taking of our punishment was accomplished, the curtain of the temple tore in two. That holy presence of God that Isaiah counted, uh, encountered there was no longer veiled, was no longer contained there. At Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descended on the apostles, tongues of fire appeared upon their heads. That flaming glory of God that Isaiah beheld now came and went with the whole people of God. And now the apostles could regularly, repeatedly remind their readers that they had come to Zion, that they were indeed the temple of God. And at Pentecost, we start to see that signal of Jesus go out and mass to all the world. It goes to Asia, to Africa, to Europe, drawing the multitudes out of darkness into Jesus' kingdom, into God's temple. Paul references this passage in Isaiah in Romans 15 to explain how the gospel is being outworked in the church, how Jew and Gentile are being united as one people. We in the church, as we are saved out of the world, as we are reconciled to each other as one people, are experiencing the fulfillment of this promise, the signal, the gospel going out, the kingdom of Jesus conquering. As Calvin says of King Jesus, the doctrine of the gospel is his royal banner which assembles believers under his dominion. Wherever, therefore, the doctrine of the gospel is preached in purity, there we are certain that Christ reigns. So even as we wait for the full and final restoration of the Edenic peace and the Zion presence of God in Jesus' kingdom, we start to enjoy the fruit of his reign as he now sits enthroned in heaven. We see the gospel drawing people out of slavery, sin and death and animosity to become one united kingdom. We see that kingdom growing and expanding, just like Jesus said it would, growing out from a small place over the whole world, awaiting his glorious return when these realities will be fully consummated and peace and paradise will be fully restored. Living in this current moment of history, where we can look back on the salvation that God has accomplished, but we are still waiting to see his promises finally and fully realized. We feel very much like Israel wandering in the desert, don't we? We rejoice in already being saved, in already being God's people, 
But still we suffer from the enemies of God. We look forward to the final goal of God's plan for history when we will dwell in the final eternal state of the kingdom of Jesus. So Isaiah closes this section with a beautiful passage about life in the kingdom of Jesus. How will we live when that kingdom is fully consummated? What is our hope for that day? Let's read Isaiah chapter 12. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. This short chapter marks the conclusion of a section that goes back to chapter 6. And throughout this section of Isaiah, God has exposed sin, has contrasted it with his holiness, has shown his judgment, and has then promised his grace. Now this section ends with the rejoicing of those who have, yes, seen his holiness, who have seen their sin, who have understood his judgment, and then enjoyed God's salvation from it. This is the song of salvation that God's people will sing forever, but it is also the song of salvation that we can sing already. We sing it in hope for the day when it will be more loudly and clearly sung throughout all the world. That day when God's plan for history is complete and Jesus' kingdom is fully established. This is our final point this morning. Life in the kingdom of Jesus will be joyfully praising our Savior. The allusions to Exodus as this template for God's coming salvation are still pervasive in chapter 12 here. Verse 5 points us clearly back to the song that Miriam sang after Israel had been led through the dried Red Sea and the sea had swallowed up the Egyptians, their enemies. For Israel, the natural response to being saved by God was to sing. It was to praise God. And this is still true. If your entrance into God's kingdom is through his salvation, that means that life in his kingdom is life of praising him for his salvation. Now, Isaiah tells us in the middle of this song, verse 3, who the singers are. It is those who joyfully draw water from the wells of salvation. Looking back still at the Exodus, after they had crossed the Red Sea, when God's people were wandering in the desert, water was, of course, salvation. And one of the key moments where God provided salvation for his wandering people was when Moses split open the rock and water poured out. Numbers says Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice and water came out abundantly and the congregation drank and their livestock. Providing water from the rock was God providing life and salvation to his people when they otherwise would have died. So by speaking of salvation as abundant water, Isaiah is still looking back on God's salvation of his people in Exodus. But how would God's people continue to drink from the wells of salvation in the future? 
Brother George read John 4 for us when Jesus came to Jacob's well, an important site for the Samaritans who had long been an animosity with the Jews next door. When the Samaritan woman drew water for him from the well, Jesus contrasted that water with the water which would proceed from himself. John 4 verses 13 and 14. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this well water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What is Jesus referring to here? Isaiah or Numbers? The answer is yes. Isaiah and Jesus were both looking back on the Exodus as this type of Jesus' salvation. Paul makes this clear and brings it all together when he tells the Corinthians that their forefathers, the people in the desert, drank from the spiritual rock that, uh, and water flowed for them. And the rock, he says, was Christ. Jesus invites us to great everlasting wells of salvation. Not only from thirst, not only salvation from enemies, but as we see in this song of Isaiah, salvation from the anger of God. Because Jesus allowed that anger to be turned upon himself, just like the rock in Numbers. He himself was struck so that he might become the wellspring of eternal salvation from which we could drink. So that God would not strike us, so that his anger could be turned away from us, as it was put on Christ, and God could be called our comfort, as Isaiah sings here. And indeed, what does Paul tell the Corinthians God has become to them? The God of their comfort. The God who had every right to pour out his wrath on us in Christ is the God who comforts us. So Jesus fulfills this promise of Isaiah, that Israel would drink from the wells of salvation, just as they did in Exodus. And Jesus gives this promise, wonder of wonders, to Samaritans and Corinthians and you and I. That we can be those who draw from the wells of salvation. And so we can sing that we are the inhabitants of Zion. With the presence of the holy God in our midst. Jesus looks forward to this in John 4 as well. He tells us he will bring this about. The woman at the well, seeing that Jesus was a prophet asked him a question which had divided Jews and Samaritans. Verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. All those who draw from God's salvation respond in worship. And as we have seen, just as Jesus brings about a salvation that draws his people in from all the world, Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles, so is worship no longer located in a single place. Because God himself is known increasingly throughout the world. We now worship in truth. 
We now worship in spirit. God is worshiped wherever he is known increasingly throughout the world. We worship in fellowship with that glory of God that filled the temple. And so we no longer worship needing to go to Jerusalem, needing to go to the mountain, because God's plan has always been that salvation goes global. And so worship goes global. Not that it moves away from Zion, but as we saw already in chapter 11, that Zion goes global. This means Samaritans and Corinthians and you and I are invited to drink from the well of salvation and join in the song, shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Just as they sang it after the exodus, after they came back from exile, so we sing it even now. And we will not be singing about the holy presence of God with fear and trembling like Isaiah first felt when he saw God's glory in the temple because now salvation has been given. Sin has been atoned for. On this side of the salvation with Jesus, we are joyful in the presence of God. We delight in that presence because we have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. Here today in this gathering as a local church body, as those who are already saved by Jesus, who are reconciled to him, who are reconciled to each other, we enjoy the first fruits, the first taste, the first pleasure of this worship, even now. This is why when we gather together as a people, one of our main exercises is singing. The joyful worship of the God who has turned his anger away from us to comfort us who we trust is guiding all history as our strength and our song, who will continue to work salvation for his people until we are safely resting in the consummated kingdom of Jesus. And as we sing now, our praises participate in the signal that goes out to the nations to bring more in, to see that kingdom grow. Isaiah says that the song of the saved proclaims this, make known his deeds among the peoples. Let this be made known in all the earth. Joyful worship is the content of the kingdom of God. And insofar as it proclaims the gospel, it is also the instrument by which the kingdom grows. Brother Tim Killaley, when he was with us, quoted John Piper, missions exist because worship doesn't. And the goal of missions is to see the kingdom of Jesus grow. To see those who lived as enemies of God turn to live lives of worship. Did you know that your worship was that powerful? Did you know that your worship was so deeply connected to God's whole plan and purpose for history? Indeed, our worship is the goal of history. Just as it is the reason that we were made. So then what should we do? We should sing. We should sing when we are glad. We should sing when we are downtrodden. We should sing when we feel like we are in the wilderness and the promised land feels far away. We should sing when our enemies seem powerful and threatening. When we feel weak, when we feel tired and grumpy. Because through all of this, our future hope is unwavering. Our salvation is sure. And we can sing even in our darkest moments because we are enjoying a foretaste of that joy 
that we look forward to when the night is gone and morning has dawned and the light touches all creation, when the whole curse will not just be broken, but banished, when Zion, the full glorious presence of God, will touch every corner of creation, when peaceful dominion of Eden will be fully restored and made even more glorious because now it will be full of the praises of Jesus who populated Eden with sinners who were saved from being God's enemies to being the peaceful people of God. So our worship will be all the louder and all the higher because of the salvation of Jesus. With that hope, let us sing praises that conquer the world. And I will close with these words reiterated from Calvin's notes on this passage. In this world, we taste but the beginning of Christ's kingdom. And while the church is harassed by enemies, both within and without, still the Lord defends and preserves her and conquers all her enemies. Besides, this prediction properly belongs to the true and lawful children of Abraham, whom the Lord has purified by the cross. Thus, the promise which Isaiah makes in this passage has already been in part fulfilled and is fulfilled every day. We must proceed in these exercises and must fight earnestly within and without till we obtain that everlasting peace which will be our happiness to enjoy in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you that these promises are sure, that this is not a vague, uncertain hope, that we can gaze clearly at the future kingdom of Jesus and know it is promised. We thank you that you have populated that future Eden and that future Zion with those who had no claim to be there with sinners saved entirely by grace, who can then call themselves yours. We thank you that your kingdom will surely conquer. And Father, I pray that when we are tempted to fear the world and its powers and its anxieties, its insecurities, that we would gaze upon Christ. And Father, may we indeed enjoy a foretaste of that kingdom as we worship Jesus for his salvation now. And may that help us to rest our hope entirely on the day when we will sing and sing and sing and praise forevermore in his everlasting kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.